you know, we've had, uh, you know, I believe always, and I've always believed God for this as a pastor, that God would connect us with people so we would, uh, he would create relationship. So the people who come to speak into your lives, to impart from the gift that's in them, there will be a level of a relationship, connection. So the importance and the, the, the really the vitality and life that comes through that ministry is there. And, and I believe that, you know, years ago, I'm trying to think how many years ago it was. It's like 17 years ago. Um, uh, just through God dealing with me about hearing driven by eternity and feeling like our young people really needed to get a hold of that. And then uh, uh, Rose Raman, who was the head of our young adult ministry, uh, calling me, uh, Messenger and getting Addison on the line. Uh, their conversation and relationship uh, connected a 17-year relationship uh, with us, with this church, with Messenger International, that team, what they're doing in all the world, John and Lisa, and uh, Addison and Julie and their family. And, uh, you know, as Addison is really, you know, he was just head of church relations at that time. He's the COO of Messenger International, which has uh, uh, thousands of books, nations, 300. Tell me again. I'm sorry. I should. 236 nations being reached, uh, millions of publications going out, putting in leaders' hands uh, uh, viable truths and things that will equip leaders to minister to their nation. And uh, he's overseeing that, the teams of that. He's an author. Uh, he'll share t- today with you from those, uh, uh, one of those books, I'm sure, but author of Saints and uh, uh, Words with God. And um, I'm just telling you, the gift that God has put in him uh, is just amazing, and we are so blessed, and we're so honored uh, to have Addison come and speak to our men, but come and speak to you today. So open up your hearts, put your hands together, give a warm Glenwood Springs welcome to Addison Bevere as he comes to minister to us. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. I was thinking about that this morning, Pastor Mark, and it's either 17 or 18 years. And I'm looking at my son right here, Asher. Asher, will you stand up real quickly? Sorry. He is almost 14. So I've been connected with y'all for longer than I've been married. I've been married for 15 years. I'll have a picture of my family up here. I've been married for 15 years, have four kids. And so I'm so grateful for the way y'all have spoken into my life, Pastor Mark, Pastor Tasha, the way that you have believed in me, not just in Messenger, but the way you've believed in me, the way you've invested in me, the way you've opened your hearts to me. It means so much. So a lot of people, when they see me, they just see John and Lisa's son, and I really feel seen by you too as Addison. And I'm very grateful to be John and Lisa's son. I, I don't take that um, honor and that privilege lightly, um, but it's really a gift to be seen by people for who you are, and I'm grateful that y'all have done that for me. So uh, I want to I wanna call out one thing. Pastor Mark was mentioning what Messenger is doing all over the world. Y'all have been such a big part of that. Um, through your generosity, through your giving to this church. Y'all have partnered with Messenger for years now. And Messenger is the leading provider of discipleship resources in over 70 languages. And we're the only provider of discipleship resources in over 30 languages. And so I, I just want y'all to know what you're doing here in Western Colorado. It's reaching into the nation. So thank y'all. Thank you for being a part of this house. Thank you for being faithful to the mission and the vision that God has placed here in the new creation family. And thank you for working with Messenger to reach the nations. All right, y'all ready? 
ready to dive in. I've got a lot that I'm excited to share. That's my family right there. Julie, Asher, Sophia, Elizabeth, and the little man down there, the little face, that is Augustus. Uh, I feel so blessed. I get to see them tomorrow. I'm missing them so much. But God's put a message on my heart for y'all. I actually shared a bit of this message with the men last year. So men, just hang with me. The first part, it's going to be good for you to hear it again. The first seven minutes or so, you're going to be like, I've heard this. And yes, you have heard it, but it's good to hear it again, right? If it's good, it's good worth, good to hear it again. So Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Most of all, we thank you for your presence. It's one thing to hear you speak. It's another thing to sense your delight, your pleasure. So Father, I ask that we would be people who would know your pleasure, that we would know that you delight in us today, that we would be people who hear your word. And I pray that this wouldn't just be information, that this would be transformative in all of our lives, including my own, that we would encounter the truth, the reality of who you are. And in that place of encounter, Father, I pray that we would be changed forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Y'all, this morning I want to talk to you about praying through pain. Praying through pain. So as Pastor Mark mentioned, I wrote a book on prayer. Prayer is a passion of mine, and I've had a lot of conversations with people about prayer. You want to know what I have found out? A lot of people believe that they are really bad at prayer. A lot of people. But they don't want to tell anyone that they believe they're bad at prayer. Because they're like, I've been following Jesus for a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, 40 years. I should be better at this. Everyone else knows what's going on. I'm the one who's missing it. And I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be found lacking, found wanting. So I'm just going to keep this to myself. And I'm not going to tell people that I struggle to connect with God. I'm not going to tell people that I struggle to hear his voice. I'm just gonna figure this out on my own. And I actually had a gentleman write me um, who's in his 80s, and he said, my entire life, after reading words with God, he said, my entire life I haven't known how to pray. And he said, I can only imagine what my life would have looked like if I would have read this book 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. And so I want us to take a fresh look at prayer this morning. Can we do that? Okay, so we're gonna go to Luke chapter 11, Verse one, and I'm gonna read some scripture this morning. Is that okay? We're gonna, we're gonna dive into scripture. Verse one, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, Matthew's account is different. Matthew's account has the more complete version of the Lord's Prayer, but Luke's account, this is where he stops. And I like Luke's account because Luke immediately goes into a story that Jesus shared to explain what he means by this idea of coming to our Father in prayer. And he goes on and he says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, 
Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, this is how my Bible translates it, go ahead and mark that word in your Bibles. If you have your Bible, go ahead and mark that word impudence right there. It might be shamelessness, it might be persistence, mark that. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, Pastor Zane was talking about mindsets this morning. We struggle to understand what Jesus is saying here because we interpret this parable, this story, with a Western mindset. There's three major breakdowns that keep us from understanding what Jesus is saying in these eight verses. Number one, we read this through a lens of how we would feel about someone coming to our house in the middle of the night and asking for bread. I mean, just, can y'all imagine someone here coming to your house, banging on the door, or yelling, hey, I need some bread. I need some bread. Like, in our Western culture, it'd be, that's crazy. Like, go to the store. Figure this out. Like, what are you doing? Right? Like, this, what, what is this? But in a Near Eastern context, this would, this would have been common. There, there were travelers that would travel through the city, and it was the responsibility of the community, not just the person, to take care of the person traveling. So this guest actually wasn't just the responsibility of the person who was asking for bread. This guest is the responsibility of the whole community. That changes the dynamic, right? That changes what we're reading here. So what's at stake here is actually the honor of the community. Because if the community doesn't respond the way it's supposed to respond, shame actually comes on the community. Okay, number two. Since we don't read Greek, at least probably most of you don't read Greek, we don't see that this text is actually a poem featuring two stanzas with six units each. If y'all could throw up the second stanza, I want to show y'all something up on the screen. It's the one that has six lines kind of broken out. Let's see. Do we have it? Perfect. This is the second part, the second, um, second unit, or second stanza, and these are the six units. If he will not give him, so this is the sleeper, having arisen, this is the sleeper, because of being a friend of his, this is about the sleeper, but because of his anidea, this is the sleeper, that is the word that we often translate persistence or impudence or shamelessness, he will arise, the sleeper, and give him whatever he needs, the sleeper. Do you see the symmetry here? Who is this about? The sleeper. But you know what we do when we translate anidea because we don't know what to do with that word? We make that fourth line, we make it about the one making the request. The Greek word anidea is only used once in all of Scripture. It's not used at all in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. This word has given scholars fits for centuries. They do not know what to do with it. And then a gentleman named Kenneth Bailey dedicated his life, and I'm not kidding you, his life, to understanding Luke's parables. And he, he grew up in the Near East. He, he, was the, he was the head chair of the New Testament School of Theology. He did so much work on this word and what he discovered is this word does indeed have something to do with shame. So we translate it shamelessness, but really what this has to do is the absence 
of shame or the avoidance of shame. And so what he's really saying here, and and when you think about persistence, it doesn't make sense that the sleeper is persistent because the sleeper is in bed. But when you change that and you make it, but because of his honor, because that's really what it's talking about here, but because of his honor or because of his avoidance of shame, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. So this story actually isn't about the person making the request. This story is about the sleeper. And it's about the honor of the name. Father, hallowed be your name. You see, but when it comes to prayer, we tend to make ourselves the hero or the villain of the story. If only I would have prayed harder or differently or used the right words. But this parable isn't about us. Jesus' big point here culminates in the promise that if evil neighbors will lose some sleep to avoid shame, how much more will the heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit? In other words, God's Spirit, his very life is promised to those who dare to know, to seek, to understand, to ask, to call on the name. Y'all are like, okay, Addison, that's nice. But I've been the guy who asked for bread at night. And it sure seemed like God didn't get out of bed. I want to see any hands in here if you're like, it sure seemed like God didn't get out of bed. Come on, you're not going to get, no, lightning's not going to hit you or anything. Come on, really? Only like five of you? Wow. Okay. I went through a season of my life where I struggled with insomnia for five years. And I tried everything. When I say I tried everything, I mean I tried everything to sleep. Nothing would work. And y'all, I I felt like I was being faithful. I felt like I was doing the right things. But for whatever reason, it just seemed like sleep would never come to me at night. I would sleep maybe two, three hours a night. Five hours, six hours a night. That would be an amazing night's sleep for me. And in this season, I felt abandoned by God. I I didn't feel the presence of God, the tangible presence of God for two years during this time. I was like, God, what is going on? Why have you forsaken me? What have I done? And the truth is, I learned in this season that God has a way of not delivering us from a thing if he knows that the thing will ultimately deliver us to him. I'm gonna say that again. God has a way of not delivering us from a thing when he knows that that thing will ultimately deliver us to him. See, I wanted God to fix my insomnia because I wanted to go on living under the illusion that I was God over my life. See, I would spend my midnight hours trying to solve everything, trying to order my world into existence, trying to check all of the boxes, trying to be the master of my fate. I hadn't learned how to surrender. And God, as I said, he realized that just delivering me from that insomnia wasn't my path to freedom. I thought it was. I thought being free from insomnia really was what I was asking for, but the truth was that wasn't what I was asking for. What I was really looking for, what I was crying out for, was a connection that would change everything in my life. You see, 
We can't really know how faithful God is until life's given us a reason to doubt his faithfulness. We can't really know how good God is until we've had to stare down doubt and move through doubt. That is when doubt transforms into faith. Faith is not God doing whatever you thought he should do. Faith is God doing whatever he said he would do. And that journey transforms us because God's not the one changing. We are. Our understanding of God, how we engage with him, how we receive from him. If we read Psalm 22, verses 1 to 2, which I'm going to throw that up. I think I have it. I'm going to throw it up there for you. We find words that Jesus prayed on the cross. Y'all remember these words. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? So let's just get this straight. The man who gave us the story, the parable about God getting out of bed and giving us whatever we need is praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes David. Then David goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Y'all, this is where I found myself. And it hit me one day. I was praying through this, and it hit me what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 about Jesus becoming like us in every respect. It hit me that Jesus, in order to fully understand the range of human experience, would have had to move through the feeling and the sense of abandonment by God. Because I personally believe that the greatest temptation that we face as humans is the belief that God has abandoned us. When we believe that God has abandoned us, we will do all sorts of other things. We will give ourselves over to idolatry. We will live in a way that's contrary to his word. We will take matters into our own hands. When we believe that we are abandoned by God, Every other form of sin, I truly believe, comes from that. Like you were saying, Pastor Mark, it's that poison of unbelief that the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 3. But I think it's amazing that Jesus didn't stay there. He, when he prayed out Psalm 22, you got to remember, for them, they didn't have the verses like we do now. He was singing a song. He was participating in a song. And so that entire movement of the song, what that song represents, would have been called to mind in the hearts and the lives of the people who knew the song. And later, in that same psalm, listen to what David says. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction, or the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him but as heard when he cried to him, but as heard when he cried to him. Going back to Luke 11, when Jesus teaches us to pray, lead me not, lead us not into temptation, we have to understand, we read all over the New Testament that we will be tempted, that we will go through trials. Tempt, temptation and trials, same Greek word. We're gonna go through them. We're actually promised that we will navigate suffering, that we will navigate pain, like, this is a part of growing and maturing. James says, count it all joy when you go through various 
trials. He's getting creative. He's like, there's, there's variety. Like, this is a part of the human experience. Do not be surprised. But he also says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. But this is a part of what it is to move through the process. And what we pray, we pray, lead us not into temptation. What we're actually praying is not, may we never go through trial or temptation. What we're declaring, this is actually a prophetic declaration. We're saying that the trial or temptation is not where our story ends. There's, there's a Greek word there, into, which means that you will not deliver me to, as in that will be the end of my story. But the accuser wants us to stop at my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's like, no, I need your cry because your cry is powerful. You want a formula when it comes to prayer? He's like, no, I need your cry. I don't need this formulaic, non-relational approach in prayer. I need you to get real with me. Jesus gave us a precedent of getting real with God. I think of what David says in Psalm 142. He says, I pour out my complaints before you, God. Some of y'all are like, no, I can't complain to God. No, you can't complain about God. But complain to God? Oh, and just watch what God does. Bring your complaints directly to God and watch him show up in your life. But the enemy wants you over here just complaining about God or not being honest about what you're moving through, what you're going through, not bringing that to God. God knows, y'all. You can't hide that from him. I want to share a bit of Sarah's story with y'all. We don't talk about Sarah that often, right? We talk about Abraham a lot. I don't feel like we talk about Sarah much. I want to talk about Sarah. Wife of Abraham, she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a woman of great faith. She had her name changed by God. I mean, this, this woman is incredible. When you really understand the pain of her journey and you, you trace that across Abraham's decisions and his failures and his successes and his cries, all of that, it's like, wow, Sarah, you are amazing. Well, did y'all know that according to rabbinic tradition, Sarah died of a broken heart? She couldn't take the fact that her husband went to sacrifice Isaac, the promise, the son that she had suffered so much for. She couldn't take it. If you look at her life, you think about the fact that she went through a lot of wandering. She was used by her husband twice as a bargaining chip slash insurance policy given to other men. She knew the pain of jealousy and regret that Abraham had slept with another woman that she recommended that he, slept, that he sleep with. So like so much dissonance and confusion there. An, an heir was birthed that didn't actually belong to her. And then who knows what she had to navigate through that. She knew the disappointment of believing God for a son only to be let down year after year after year after year after year after year after year. She knew, she's the first woman that's called barren in scripture. She knew the pain. People look at her like, what's wrong with you? Like, why aren't you producing? Like, God has spoken these things over your husband. What's wrong with you? She knew that. That was her story. Now, we have Genesis to read. 
We know how the story ends. But Sarah didn't. And in Genesis 23, we receive, when we read this, we receive the news that Sarah has died. It's, it's very flat. The state was just like, and Sarah died at 127. And then from there, in Genesis 23, it's very apparent that the family is in a state of disarray. Abraham is mourning. He cannot find a place to bury her. He doesn't feel like he's home anywhere. He feels like a sojourner. He's looking for a place to bury his wife, but he doesn't want to bury her too close because he doesn't want to be reminded of the pain. Finally, he has to buy, has to go through this weird negotiation process and buy a field to lay his wife to rest. And then Isaac is clearly in deep depression and sadness. Who knows what kind of trauma he's navigating after? I mean, y'all counselors in the room might be able to speak to that after what happened at the Akedah, the moment where Abraham almost killed him. And he's probably working through that. Like, okay, what's that all about, God? Like, I mean, we, we sanitize the story, but come on, guys. Like, your dad's standing over you with a knife? These are real people. And so he's kind of messed up. And I'll prove it to you later. He's a little messed up. And then Abraham goes to his servant, and he's like, hey, you got to go back to the, only, to the last place that felt like home. Go back to the land of my people and find a wife for my son. He's like, I can't stomach the idea of him marrying someone from here. Go back to the land of my people. And the servant's not very confident. The servant's like, um, okay, yeah, but what if she doesn't want to come with me? Like, what do I do then? And they have this dialogue back and forth that you could tell the servant is apprehensive about this journey. But the servant respects his master and he's like, okay, I'm gonna go. And then we find this moment, and I think this is so great, where he goes on his journey and he's wondering to himself, okay, God, the God of Abraham, are you still like for Abraham? Is this, am I still in the right place? Do I need to be looking for employment elsewhere? And, and in Genesis, check this out, in Genesis 24, verse 12, he says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show Hesed, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and you shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. You see this emphasis on steadfast love, steadfast love to my master. Now, again, we lack context, but he had 10 camels, okay? Camels, probably 30 gallons each, typically. 300 gallons of water. This shouldn't happen. He is praying, he is specifying an impossible prayer. He is putting God's nature, God's name to the test. Are you really the God of Abraham? And are you really a God of steadfast love? He puts him to the test. And I love later in the, the text, it says, like before this really even formed, the prayer formed, Rebecca comes onto the scene. And she offers to give him water and water all of the camels. Now, just keep in mind, this wasn't a normal well. She would have to grab her, jar, walk downstairs into the ground, scoop up water, walk back up the stairs, put it in a trough, and walk back down. 
Like, this shouldn't have happened. And it just goes to show you, we talked about this last year, but it goes to show you, God's not afraid of your specific prayers. You see, God can do a lot with a vague prayer, but you're not going to know what he's doing with a vague prayer. Like, you're not going to know. You're not going to be able to connect the dots. Even your specific prayers that don't get it right lead you on a journey to understanding how to get it right. They reform you. They transform you. Jesus, the night when he was in the garden, when he was sweating blood, he modeled the three dimensions of prayer that are so important. Number one, specificity. He says, God, if there's any way this cup can pass, please, please let it pass. Number two, he was steadfast. He prayed it again and again and again. He wrestled through this prayer to the point where he is sweating blood. But then number three, he was surrendered. Not my will, but yours be done. He was specific. He was steadfast. He was surrendered. We like to be vague and surrendered. Yeah, you know, God, whatever. You're God, I, you know, whatever you want to do, your will. And God's like, no, actually, I want you to be specific and in your specificity, surrender your request to my will. Like, come and ask for bread. Don't be like, hey, I, you know, I need something. I don't know, like, I need something. No, come and ask for bread. And if you notice, you pay close attention to this parable. Number one, he doesn't knock. The mentality is that he knocks. He doesn't knock, he cries. Number two, he doesn't give him bread. He gives him whatever he needs. So going on, listen to what, what the servant says. It says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken, everyone say forsaken, his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master, his kinsman. Y'all, this word forsaken here is the exact same word that Jesus uses. It's the Greek equivalent. It's the exact same word in Hebrew that David uses. It's a zav. And you know what's so curious about this word? It can mean to forsake or to abandon or to disintegrate, but it can also mean to gather together and build and restore. And the idea here is even when it looks like it's disintegrating, it's breaking apart, it's abandoned, it's lost. God is actually in the business, even by the definition of this word, of reintegrating, of restoring, of bringing back together in fresh form. Now let me show you this in the narrative. Toward the end of the chapter, Isaac is out meditating in the field. And he lifted his eyes, and, and the narrative paints this picture of a new season. He dared to look again, behold, and he sees what? He sees Rebecca. And a season has changed, and what happens? He takes Rebecca, immediately takes Rebecca into whose tent? Sarah's tent. And Rebecca comforts Isaac in the wake of the loss of Sarah. Sarah participated in the promise that she cried out for, that she wanted more than anything else. She was present in that moment. There's a verse in the Psalms, it's Psalm 89. I'm gonna have him put it up. 
because y'all, this must be a banner over our lives. This is a verse that is very precious to the Jewish people. It says, blessed are the people who know the feastal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. It goes on to say, who exult in your name. Everyone say, in your name. All the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Go back to 15, please. This word right here, feastal shout in Hebrew is teruah. And it is the low, broken note of the shofar. Have you, any of you ever heard of shofar blown? I mean, that's not something we normally do. Okay, a few of you. Y'all know that low, broken note? It's the bass note. It's, it's kind of messy and uncomfortable and maybe off pitch and stuff. It's like, I'm not going to try to do it. That's going to be bad. But y'all know what I'm talking about. The idea here is the teruah is a defiant joy from a place of brokenness. And what this psalm is saying, blessed are those who have been intimate with the broken note and the joy that comes out of that brokenness and the promise that comes out of that brokenness. Blessed are they because they actually know the nature and the character of God. They walk in the light of your face. Not a cheap, transactional version of God, a God who just gives me whatever I want whenever I want it, but a God who truly gives me whatever I need because of the nature and the holiness of his name. Now, praise is where the broken pieces of our pain find their way back together in fresh form. We were singing that praise opens prison doors today. That's the idea. But the enemy doesn't want you to cry out. The enemy wants you to stay quiet. The enemy wants to convince you that you've checked the right boxes, but God has checked out. Something's wrong with you. And I'm telling y'all, if you go to God with your pain, oh man, you have no idea what he's gonna do. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are not using magical language that somehow ensures that our prayers are answered the way we want them to be. Remember the man who asked his friend for bread? Well, he didn't just give him bread, he gave him whatever he needed. Remember that. And I wanna go on and read the next few verses that Jesus shares right after this story. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? For he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give his nature, give his spirit to those who ask him? We have a promise here that we could be specific because if we think we're asking for bread and we're actually asking for a stone, guess what God's gonna do? He's not gonna give us a stone. He's gonna teach us how to ask for bread. Y'all, there's no request that leaves our lips that does not hide, find a hiding place in the heart of God where it is prepared for its moment of release, of promise, 
That's where it transforms. That's where it takes on the right form. That's when it actually is a reflection of God's heart for us and our heart for God. We have to be people who are willing to pray, willing to believe that the ultimate purpose of prayer is not transaction, it is transformation. When we pray in his name, we are saying yes to transformation while confronting the dangerous and comforting certainty that he is who he is and that his every response, whatever form the response may take, is for the sake or honor of his name. He promises that even in the pain, he will give the gift of himself to everyone who asks, and there is no greater gift than him. When we cry, my God, it's not what God can do for us that we want. It's God that we want. When we meet God, what he does for us, what he can do for us, that takes on form, that becomes clear. But as I shared earlier, God has a way of not delivering us from a thing. God has a way of not giving us what we think we need, the freedom, what, the peace, whatever it is, when that freedom, that peace is actually found within our ability to be God. God wants to lead us to himself and he does that for the sake of his name. If y'all could bow your heads with me, that'd be amazing. Father, I thank you that everything that you do is for the honor and the sake of your name. I thank you that your name revealed through the person of Jesus Christ is the name above every other name. I thank you that it is in your name where the righteous are exalted. And God, I pray that your spirit, the promised gift of your spirit, would secure us in the promise of the name. Father, whatever my friends are navigating in this season, whether it's something from the past or something in this present moment or a fear related to the future, God, I pray that there would be a grounding in the permanence, in the steadfast love and the chesed that is found in your name. Give them boldness to ask. Give them boldness to cry out. I pray that they would lay aside cheap words and cheap sentiments, that they would be people who pour out their words before you. And as you do, God, I ask that you would pour out yourself, your spirit, into them, on them, in their situations, God. And I pray that they would be transformed to engage those moments, to understand those answers, to believe for those prayers in ways that they've never been able to understand them before. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Y'all, thank you. Asher, can you bring this up real quick? Y'all, this is my son who I showed you earlier. Thank you. I am, um, y'all, if you're in a season where like, I wanna have words with God, but it seems like God doesn't wanna have words with me. If that's your season, please get this book. If you wanna go deeper in prayer, please get this book. I promise you, you will not find formulas but you will find principles, okay? And if you know someone, I know, I know y'all know people in your world. They've given up on God because they feel like God didn't show up in a time of great need. Like they cried out to God and God didn't show up. Y'all, the testimonies that I'm getting from people 
who were in that boat, who had given up on prayer, who had given up on God, and engaged with this book, it brought fresh life into them. So if you know someone like that, please get this book, give it to them. It's not heavy-handed. It's not religious. It's something that is going to speak to what I believe God has written on every single person's heart because we were made for intimacy with him. Amen? Amen. So it's right back there. Pastor Mark, Pastor Tasha, thank you. It's all yours. Wow. Glory to God. Amen. Man, aren't you so thankful to Jesus that he gave gifts unto men? Put gifts in somebody to deliver to us things that will equip us for work of ministry and gives them specific revelation concerning things that so help us change our mindset concerning prayer. I mean, in that, I hope that just stirred you to go, man, I'm, I want to dive deeper into learning about prayer and uh, not just stay with where I'm at, but uh, that prayer and to just understand some things. And, and I'll, 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 I'll do a little spoiler for you because when he's, he, he ended the honor of his name and, and we know that, but you got to get into the book because he has a revelation about the name. Uh, of not just Jesus, but who Jesus was, which translates to who we are and who God calls us from that name. It has to do with his steadfast love and who we are to him, and it's just really amazing. But, you know, as we get into that place of prayer and things, you know, that stood out is that transformation and allowing ourselves to go through some of those times and stay with God, stay steadfast. And, you know, it reminds me something that God spoke to us, you know, a couple of years ago when you go into Isaiah 40 and it talks about those who wait on the Lord. And sometimes, you know, we're twiddling our thumbs and we're praying and we're wondering what God's going to do. But really that word actually means to intertwine that our time with God is not about, again, transactional. We talk to God about what we want. We get what we want or we don't get what we want. But in that place of not knowing, we are intertwining ourselves with God. And there's something about the strength of that because he, he lines out right in the beginning of that. He says, listen, did you not know or did you not understand that God's not getting tired? God's not getting weak. And those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and grow weary. They'll not... The walk and not faint. In other words, he's saying, if you understood the nature and the character of God, he's not getting wore out and he's not getting tired. So if you wait on him and allow that to intertwine you. So our, our complaint, you know, if we're not careful, we think we're just going to complain. We start complaining, start complaining about our situation. Then we complain about people in our situation. But it usually lends itself, as we look at Scripture, to complaining against God. Because we think to complain to God would be off limits. And really see how we get it reversed. To complain to God uh, or complain against God ends up causing all kinds of difficulty. But to bring our complaint to God, He is the one who can transform our complaint and, and navigate that. Just so powerful. So powerful. 
And so in that, that intimacy with God, as he ended, you know, the honor of his name, uh, there's just so much to that. And I trust that you grab some, some of these very important things he said, but at the same time, I can just tell you, uh, the book will really begin to, as you chew on it, meditate on it, help open up some areas. And I can tell you, even if you have some areas of prayer that you've gotten good at, this will help you really in, in just so many ways in your prayer life. So I encourage you to go back there and get that book. The Bible tells us that when we receive the word, how many of you received the word this morning? So when we receive the word, we have received something that is so powerful. It's of spiritual substance. It's a seed that goes in and begins to take root as we receive it. And so even in that time, there's things going on that you're not seeing. But as you cultivate, as you allow this, what he's talked about, as you meditate on it, as you look at it, you bring things into it, it'll start to take root in your life. Even this idea of prayer will take root. But as it takes root and you continue, it'll begin to produce fruit. So what you've received is not like, what a great Sunday message. You've received something that God intends on planting in your life and producing through your life. And so he says, if you can grasp that and the value of that, he says, is it any big deal that we communicate to the teacher in a natural substance? A divine exchange of values and understanding that we're communicating something of lesser value because God has really brought a way to impart to us something of great value uh, from his word and the gift that he's given to his body. He said, I've given you something that if you'll take a hold of it, we'll continue on. And is it any big deal that we communicate a natural substance? And there's just so much to that that you all know you're generous. Uh, you're a generous people, but there's, so, there's something of recognition. There's something of honor as we receive an offering. It's not just, uh, you know, as he's been talking about transactional, we can look at it as just transaction. Well, he talked to us, and now we're going to exchange. There's just something more that God wants in it. And in that, we start to find the blessing of his word. Not that we just made a transaction, but we've entered into something relational. We've entered into something that acknowledges what God is doing through his word through the giftings, through our life that, that really begin to fold together in an acknowledgement and a heart intimacy with God. Amen. And so we want to receive an offering for Addison.